A pandemic of violence floods the streets of major cities as cases of the media dubbed murder virus, MV20 soar, causing those infected to go on killing sprees. Caught in the middle, police detective Angela Miller finds her only trustworthy ally in the self-proclaimed psychic PI, Gerald Henry. As the two try to navigate the violence, they are drawn into new age guru, Abra Mellon Harvest's plot to heal the planet. Harvest's missive? The world is sick, and humanity is the infection. The cure? Murder. From the twisted mind of Sean C. Baker, author of A Collection of Desires, and Shadowplay in Book One, Kim and Jesse, comes his most vicious novel yet, Murder Virus. Available where books are sold. Hi, this is Sean from the Horror Vision Horror Podcast. So just a brief warning, we are going to be going deep spoiler territory. Uh, Ray, myself, and Professor John Trafton. And I just want to give everybody a warning. If you haven't seen Messiah of Evil, I don't necessarily know that spoilers are something that will affect your viewing of the movie. It's not narrative driven. However, I just wanted to be polite and let you know that that's where we're going. So we're going to start a little bit more on the surface level and dive deep. You've been warned. The peering around buildings at night and they're waiting, they're waiting for you. And they'll take you one by one and no one will hear you scream. No one will hear you scream. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Horror Vision Horror Podcast. I'm Sean. I'm Ray. And our guest today is Professor John Trafton. John, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, hey, Sean. Welcome. So, John, you uh, are you are a professor of film, yes? Yes, uh, professor of film studies uh, at Seattle University. And you're originally born in uh, Los Angeles? Yeah, I'm born and raised in uh, Los Angeles, uh, Verdugo Hills area, Pasadena area. Okay. Grew up, but uh, really just sort of all over. Lived in uh, Silver Lake, Culver City area, and then spent a great deal of time in Orange County. Ah. Really all nice. over then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is interesting because that will that'll kind of parlay into something in your article. So let me tell people the, the way that this happened that um, I invited John on. So recently, Shudder added Messiah of Evil. 1973, Gloria Katz and John, is it Hyuk? Uh, Will Willard Hyuk. I, I'm sorry, Willard Hyuk. Thank I know, you. I know such a good horror name for a horror director, Willard. 
Yeah, right? <laughs> so they added that, and I had been wanting to watch this movie for a couple years. I originally, on the old Shockwaves podcast, heard Rebecca McKendry talk about it, and ha I had no, I'd never heard of it before, which, not that I have this all-encompassing knowledge, but the guys, um, when I still lived in Chicago, the guys that really kind of turned my love of horror into an obsession had such vast knowledge and collections that normally if somebody mentions something, I've heard of it. And so then what I find out is, oh, this movie never went to, uh, it didn't go to DVD until like 2009. And at the time that uh, Rebecca McKendry mentioned it, or shortly thereafter, I noticed it did come to Prime, but the, the copy they had was unwatchable. I mean, it's like, you know, you can sometimes find like old TV shows on YouTube and it's, it, it's just unwatchable. Yeah, the, the, there was a pretty piss poor quality of it on uh, YouTube for like a great deal of time. And then they, they've just recently put out a, a pretty decent Blu-ray do you know who put it uh, out? Is that the Code Red? Uh, gosh, no, I, I would have to double check on it, but I think that it what really what's really striking about this whole thing, this whole journey, is that this is a, a film that really was kind of a work in progress. It was like the, the yeah the two uh, the two filmmakers, as you mentioned, uh, Willard Huck and uh, Gloria Katz, uh, they. I were like, you know, fresh out of UCLA Film School uh, and USC Film School, respectively. They were also um, really involved in that Roger Corman, Russ Myers world. Uh, and then they do this film, they submit it to different distributors as a work of progress with like a temp track on it by uh, using old uh, Alfred Hitchcock, Bernard Herman uh, scores. And then, wow. yeah, and then, it, then, it, then, yeah, the, the final distributor after like they shot it in 71, released it in 73. And after uh, several attempts to get it distributed, you know, with get some financing first so they can kind of finish it properly and give a proper edit. Someone just, the distributor just takes it off their hands, uh, edits it with like a new score, you know, the, the one that, you know, of course we hear throughout the film. Uh, and I've got the guy's name written down here, uh, Philly and Bishop score. Yeah. Uh, and like the ending, the original ending was sort of altered and feels kind of rushed. Uh, so, you know, all in all, this is, this is not a film that is necessarily going to blow you away in the way that, you know, other films from the seventies, like The Exorcist or The Omen, or uh, Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, which is probably one of my favorite horror yeah. films from the 70s. It's not gonna just, it's not gonna blow you away like those films, but you are definitely in for an interesting treat because there are a lot of ingredients in this film that are endlessly fascinating. And it's, it is very watchable. Well, well said. Um... And, and that was the thing with this movie was so I finally get to see it and the the, the copy that Shutter adds is pristine and so it's it's sourced from that Blu-ray, which is the 40th anniversary Blu-ray. I just looked it up and immediately I want to read about this film. 
as soon as it ends, I'm like, I got to read about it. And so there's not a lot to read. Because there wasn't a whole lot. There wasn't a whole lot that I had to work on. And, and, and really, this, this article was kind of an afterthought, really, because I was really, working, yeah, because I was doing research uh, on uh, a book that I had just recently written. It's uh, going through the publisher publishing process right now. And it's sort of about LA and film. I was, I was, had just taught a class about LA and film. So I was really kind of had a lot of this material. And I just sort of kept returning to this film because I discovered it years and years and years ago through uh, Tom Anderson's uh, film, Los Angeles Plays Itself. It features in that uh, film, it's a video essay documentary. It features in it, uh, incidentally, Tom Anderson, the creator was a friend of both Willard Hyuk and Gloria Katz at the time. Uh, and the, you know, I, I came to it and I, re and I just realized, you know what, this is kind of interesting. I'm going to just knock out, you know, a little article because I had some thoughts because I, I just thought this is like just laden with all this LA pop art and that so just yeah. like how the film was kind of an accidental film. The article that you read was kind of an accidental article. That blows me away because so your article, so I'm looking at this, um, this Kim Newman, the nightmare movies, horror on the screen since the 60s. That's the book yeah, and it's so out bad. of print or whatever. So as I'm looking around that, I think somehow through researching that book, I found your article and your article, which is on johntrafton.com, Messiah of Evil, Film and the Influence of L.A. Pop Art, uh, published July 22nd, 2019. I, you pull in so many and you you say right away you set up the article beautifully in that the essay beautifully in that you say you know you, you set up the film but you're like what i really want to talk about with this film isn't necessarily what everybody else might want to talk about it's about the influence of la on this movie and i think that's the thing that's caught me so much about watching the film was you know like i didn't know it was a work in progress it makes sense but it isn't the plot necessarily that that grabbed me and pulled me through. It was the visuals and the pop art, especially. I mean, the first thing I wanted to know is, so the main location, which is, you know, in a nutshell, our main character, Arletti, is looking for her father, who's an artist that lives in this beach community called, uh, fictional beach community called Point Dune. She goes up there, he's disappeared, so she's staying in his home. And his studio slash bedroom is the probably the main location of the film. And I've never seen anything that looks like that in my life ever. And I wanted to know, like, was this just something, did they know somebody who actually had this or did they design this for the movie? And so that's well, where I got into your article. Well, well, you kind of got to think about this in terms of like Malibu, you know, just sort of that whole Malibu area. Point Doom, you know, where they, the, the iconic, you know, ending scene of uh, Planet of the Apes, they shot that there, and Bart and Fink, the little beach party at Jackie Treehorn's house, yes. <laughs> on that beach. Uh, further on up, you know, Donnie, you know, his, his ashes are spread, you know, in the big Lebowski. And it's just, so you got like this whole area that really does have like a rich cinematic past. It goes all the way back to film noir. And so it's kind of film noir territory. Mildred Pierce, the home from Mildred Pierce is in like on the same road as Arletti's father. Wow. Home is uh, in uh, Messiah of Evil. And, and, and it's so, and the LA thing, I, I guess I would just 
really kind of say for your listeners, it's just sort of like, yeah, we've got a horror film, we've got a zombie film, or I guess there's zombies, whether the jury's kind of out whether they're meant to be zombies or vampires. Uh, you know, not really that kind of unusual, but what I did find unusual is it's really, really kind of difficult to find horror cinema that explicitly uses LA and Southern California as a location. I mean, yeah, they're shot in Southern California, many, many, many of them. There are some that, you know, like independent ones and like exploitation, straight to mm-hmm. VHS, grindhouse stuff from the 80s that right. you, you can tell it's in LA or Southern California, you know, locale. Uh, Poltergeist just kind, kind of does that as well. But like something that is like ex- explicitly says, this is Southern California. This is North of LA. This is like a drive, like in where, and because if you're going to refer to a particular region and you're going to, or to a particular city, then you're going, you know that there's a whole bunch of cultural connotations that are attached to that location that you want to spring to mind in the viewers, which that was kind of sort of the genesis of saying, okay, I'll write something about this film because there's a lack of that, you know, in uh, the horror canon. And clearly, uh, Hyuk and Katz knew what they were doing and why they wanted to do it. And that, so they found this house, they were shooting the exteriors, the interiors with like the swinging, it's like, I, it's like, I almost kind of want to maybe spend at least one night on that. Yeah. You know, there, there's a bed that the main character, Arletti, is, uh, sleep, sleeps on that is essentially a swing like surrounded by like all of this like sort of Ed Ruscha, you know, and Ed Kineholtz, you know, style pop art. Uh, and that was an interior that was shot in some home in Echo Park. But now, so was that art actually there or that's that's the product of the, the art team, right? Uh, some of it was a product of the art team. Uh, you'll see um, uh, Jack Fisk, you know, who did does work with uh, Malik and... Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson and uh, just David recently Lynch. David Lynch and uh, yeah his the film he's working on right now is presently he's uh, doing the new Scorsese film being shot in Kansas uh, oh wow DiCaprio and De Niro uh, so some of that was uh, some of that was him uh, other other than that and I forget the name of the person uh, it was um, some of it was shot was uh, at this person's home in Echo Park. Like a lot of it was just sort of the natural work because it was an artist living in Echo Park. Uh, and one of the people that worked on the film was this woman named um, Judy Friskin, who was a still photographer inspired by uh, Ed Ruscha. And they used a lot of her photography in the film, a few of like sort of the blow up, maybe blow up uh, figures, maybe that you'll see in sort of the background. Uh, more than likely she would have been involved in. Okay. And it's really kind of easy to understand this because you know they're being graduates of USC and uh, UCLA during the late 60s uh, this was an era where there was so much experimental art going on especially like with modern art with art galleries like the Ferris Gallery uh, really really playing a big role in the cultural landscape in LA during the 1960s that uh, film students were really drawn to this idea of hybridity, you know, experimental art uh, and, and um, other form, experimental forms. 
uh, and more commercial narrative cinema. Film students back then sort of saw those two worlds as having a lot more porous boundaries, really kind of like for the first time since the 1920s. It, that, and that, and unfortunately, that kind of dissipated yeah. into the late 70s and the 80s. Uh, and, you know, there was a period, of course, during the 30s and 40s and 50s where it was kind of there, but it wasn't as pronounced. And really during the 60s, there was this big flash in the pan moment where, you know, you look at a lot of the independent artwork and, you know, even something like... Um, you know, Gloria, uh, Huck and Katz were really, really good friends with George Lucas, you know, during at, during the time. And uh, they had, uh, and they saw what he was doing with uh, THX uh, 1138. So, and that's just a perfect example of that. And they're like, why don't we just yeah. sort of apply this to this uh, horror genre, which we kind of, uh, you know, really kind of um, honed our skills doing when we were working for Russ Myers and Roger Corman. Wow. Wow. Ray, what did you, what did you think? Well, go, go ahead. I was going to ask, you know, just opinions or whatever. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, I didn't think about, uh, until you said it just now, the whole thing about art. Well, I mean, I read the article, but about how experimental cinema became in the early seventies until just now, when you said that, like, it made me think about like, was this a film that ever played as like a midnight movie? Because it feels like it would have been perfect for that. I mean, considering that there's people like I'm, I'm a, I mean, Sean and I are obviously we're both fans of Lynch's and like uh, Eraserhead, but like um, I'm also a big fan of Jodorowsky and like you know El Topo, like being the like one of the first big midnight movies, and like he really is like making these films that are not just films they're like pieces of art and like it's kind of the problem like kind of why they don't have a bigger audience and why they're almost so uh, like difficult to approach for people because he's not just doing this thing of like here's just this movie here's i'm telling a story it's also like i'm doing something with the visual medium i'm, I'm doing this thing and it it makes it more difficult for the common viewer um and when i saw the film when i i had not heard of Sai Vivo until it hit shutter but when i watched it the ending turned it around for me because <laughs> otherwise I was like, this movie, it, it, it's slow moving. It is slow moving. Um, the, the visual style is amazing though. The visual style is amazing. Um, but it is slow moving, but the ending ironically turned it around. I, it did feel rushed. I didn't realize that until you said it. Um, but I mean, it did feel rushed. I didn't realize it like they had not, that it had uh, kind of been cobbled together. It sounds like or maybe rushed into production uh, to get it done. But it made me think of films uh, like um, Cabinet of Dr. Calgary or like, uh, um, uh, what did I say? What was the other one I said the other night, Sean? Carnival of Souls, um, yeah. which have, are very heavy on the visual medium and like very much, like you can see the art influence there in those films. Yeah. So was this ever like a midnight movie? Well, 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 first of all, I just I just have to say right off the bat, uh, Ray Buddy, um, I, as a I, fellow Yodorowsky fan, I, I can definitely see where you're coming from. I use Yodorowsky uh, in my teaching quite frequently. Um, and uh, was it did it ever become a midnight movie? Not I, I don't know about midnight movie, but it did get a pretty good run. Uh, through the 70s, you know, through the theatrical circuit, especially local, uh, especially in the local LA 
art house circle, it did get a pretty good run that way. In fact, it actually during um, during the LA sequence uh, in uh, Woody Allen's Annie Hall, like they actually uh, they you, you see it uh, on a movie theater marquee during in the background during that sort of montage. Scene. Oh, really? Yeah. So clear, <laughs> clearly, in '76, when they were shooting that film in LA, it was definitely you know having a pretty good run. And then they tried to. Um, they tried to kind of piggyback on the whole uh, Romero legacy. And uh, even before there was a return of the living dead, they, uh, the distributor tried to remarket it, changing it from Messiah of Evil to Return of the Living Dead. And uh, Romero sued the distributor when they pulled, but it, it had actually run in a few theaters with that title. Wow. Uh, and so... So, so yeah, very, very much kind of, um, you know, in, in that vein. And I, I will say, you know, on reflection, just having kind of come back and rewatched it recently, it's, I, I'm kind of the opposite, you know, when it comes to that movie. It's like, it's really kind of the first two thirds I tend to like more than the final third. The final third is where things kind of fall, fall apart for me. Uh, a little bit, but let me throw this question at, at both of you. Um, have you ever seen a film called uh, Let's Scare Jessica to Death? That Because I think this film has a lot in common with Let's Scare Jessica to Death on like sort of a psychological- Not yet, it is on Not yet, list. same. Yeah, ch check, check, out, check that okay. out. L listeners out there, yeah, definitely check out, well, not only Messiah of Evil, but check out Let's Scare Death Jessica to Death because you could almost sort of do them both really as sort of a double feature because they're very tonally similar. Interesting. This, yeah. That's another thing with this film, Messiah of Evil, the tone. So you mentioned earlier, there. okay, are these zombies or are these vampires? Ultimately, it does not matter in my opinion. But okay, so you mentioned in your article how... It, you also say that, you know, to kind of the, you split the difference, it doesn't really matter, but they are, if they're zombies, they're faster. So it's more like, and I feel like that has kind of risen to, to power as far as the, the zombie genre with the faster zombies. Um, and, you know, uh, 28 days later, obviously, yeah. possibly the, the first that, major place that that was introduced, right? That film is the gold stand, standard yes. for what I call the runners as opposed yes. to the lumberers. Yes. But the interesting thing, so watching a little bit of Messiah of Evil again this morning, I realized they don't just run, like, so the thing with like 28 Days Later, the running, the runners, they're compelled. They're, they're it's like all id, right? So th there's no reflection or recognition. It's just target, run, consume, or tear to pieces. And likewise, on the opposite on the spectrum with Romero, which, you know, when, so let's use the scene with Laura in the grocery store for, for listeners that haven't seen it, this is like the most referenced scene, I think, in the movie where one of the characters is looking for, she's walking the town, she's looking for a ride or whatever. Um, she goes into a grocery store and she finds all these people eating just directly raw meat from the refrigerator case. Yeah. And then they notice her and then they chase her through the store. And when they catch her and you see this a couple other points in the film, whenever they catch somebody, it looks exactly like Night of the Living Dead to me. Just the way that they huddle, they all huddle around the person 
and part of its effects, right? Because then you don't have to actually see the gore. Like when you get into the actual Return of the Living Dead is, you know, one of the first places in 1984 where like you're seeing them tear the skull case open and actually feast on the brains or whatever. Yeah. And you don't necessarily, Night of the Living Dead, it was smaller budget. So they didn't, they couldn't show that as much. So yeah. you see them kind of surround and just, you know, cover the person. And then it's implied that they're eating them or there'll be cutaway shots of them with meat. So they yeah. do do that. But when they're running, the interesting th thing is they're not all id. They like stop, like that scene in the grocery store, they stop, they look up at her and there's actual thought process. And then they follow her through the kind of cavernous aisles of the store and eventually overcome her because the, she can't get out the door that she arrives at. But the whole time, they seem to me to be these citizens that have not become either ravenous zombies or ravenous vampires, but this has just become part of their daily lives. So they're yeah. still cogent, but this is just now what they do, which is a really yeah. interesting like facet that I feel like is very easy to not even pick up on because of there's so much else going on. Yeah, and they engage in like problem solving too. It's like how they corner, uh, how, how they corner uh, Laura, the character, um, Anitra Ford's character in the uh, in the Ralphs, which by the way, uh, the Ralphs I believe still exists. In, it's in Burbank on Victory Boulevard, I think. I may have uh, to go buy some ground beef, I think. There you go, <laughs> perfect. And uh, yeah, they, they, they outsmart, they deceive and outsmart police officers yeah. and yeah, so so they're they're think they're, these are thinking and problem solving, you know, zombies. So which uh, and and yeah, you're right with like the the taxi and it's just sort of like they're just how do you how do you work on a low budget, you know, and you don't you don't and back they didn't even you know back then it was just sort of like you know are we going for an R or are we going for a PG you know there was no PG yeah. and so it was like are we going for a PG or PG or an R that wasn't a consideration at all for them so we're just going to shoot this crazy sequence and then once the zombies descend on Laura you know that's going to be this Eisensteinian montage you know where we're just yeah. all these shots around and that becomes even more psychologically you know impactful yeah L let me ask both I you guys this question so Ray you mentioned the ending is what really turns the film around for you and the fact that well I mean it's not the only I mean there are no no I know but like like I, I, I think, I, I don't know why, but like of the two different like uh, towny attack moments um, and the girls, I actually like the one in the theater more for some it, reason. It's good. I think it's because they just slowly kind of surround her. And at first it's just like, she's not noticing and you're seeing it. And then when she like, realizes like how close they're all getting, it's, I don't know what it's like. It, it's it's it, it's like they're making a conscious decision to uh, to scare her too. Yeah. <laughs> to not just like not just come up on her and not just surround her, but also to be like, no, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna creep the hell out of her. We're gonna scare the hell out of her before we get her. Like this, we're gonna have some fun with this because they also let her get out of the seat get past them and like start to check the doors and like yeah they're all just sitting there and like staring at her and it's so creepy i was like that's really impressive yeah it, it, it is and like, so i i'm wondering 
if okay so you know the movie kind of ends where it begins with this idea and i guess i'll add a spoiler tag to the beginning of this i mean i don't feel like you can spoil this movie because i feel like it you're not watching it again necessarily for the outcome or the plot or whatever it's almost more you're watching it for the tone and and for the visuals but i'll add i will before the episode starts you know i'll add that so feel free to go both of you guys as as far into this as you want my question is so it ends with this idea that our has been in a, in a hospital this whole time and that maybe this didn't happen which i don't i don't get that at all I, i'm pretty sure it did happen and that it's just easier for society to relegate her to the space where they can be like oh she's nuts we don't have to deal with this but i remembered that being the beginning of the film that like long shot of the hallway where she's kind of lit in a way where you you can't quite see her form exactly and she's coming towards you narrating but that's actually not the beginning of the movie. The beginning of the movie, I was reminded this morning, the scene where there's just a guy running, right? And on a sidewalk next to, it's like a, a garden wall or something. And then I think he falls and there's a, a young girl that opens the door and comes out. And then he goes into this backyard where there's this pool. And then it almost seems like you don't know what he's running from. I mean, obviously it's, it's assumed it's the, he's in point doing it's the town, it's the townsfolk. And then this girl kind of moves over to him and it almost seems like, is this going to be like romantic? And then she, she, he seems like he, he feels safe and then she cuts his throat. Yeah. Which is really interesting because first of all, the way she's dressed and everything about that, and the fact that she uses a razor instead of consuming him or whatever. Do you guys think that that was, so this, this was shot in 71, John, you said. It came out in 73. 69 was the Manson family murders. And I just feel like the way that girl is dressed and everything about that scene was meant to draw people into the movie. Mm-hmm. Almost like it's from a different movie. Yeah. Whether it's the subconscious of the filmmakers, you know, just sort of seeping through what they do or not. You know, I mean, that's that's obviously going to be on some people's minds. And that's obviously going to be, you know, just sort of where things go because I mean yeah 69 was of course the Taylor Bianca murders and uh, the trial was in 70 you know so just throughout the pre-production uh, and yeah that really it's, it's what um, it, it's it, that event I've always sort of posited that event of the Manson murders as being uh, what this one scholar refers to as an impact event where you have this historical event that is so traumatic and shocking that it just alters subjectivities, especially on a cultural level. 9-11 is a perfect example of that. Kennedy assassination perfect. Right. I just sort of put in the uh, Manson murders. I, I know that some people would probably quibble with that, you know, as to why that would be, you know, historically significant or the fact that, you know, it would be like an impact event, you know, sort of on such a small level, but it, it was, especially for that, uh, for not only the Hollywood community, but also for the greater significance of the counterculture uh, as well. So that, so the appearance of that, of course, would just sort of really kind of trigger into mind uh, this um, really change of perception of uh, the counterculture movement. I always find that scene very interesting because it's right after that character is, uh, is killed, we get brought in uh, to this uh, to the film with the line uh, from Arletti, no one can hear you scream. 
no one can hear you scream. And the person who was just killed uh, is Walt was Walter Hill, who went on to produce the film Alien, in which in space no one can hear you scream. So that that just always blows my mind. You know, oh my I, god! I, I I really kind of whenever I dive into that and really kind of see that Walter Hill, he he, he actually shows up a couple of times, and he's in the back of the. Um, uh, pickup truck. Pick truck, you know, as well, um, later in the film. Um, but it's really just sort of what's striking is just the colors, the colors of what she's wearing. Yeah. And the colors play such a strong role. Yet in the movie theater sequence that, you know, you were talking about, Ray, it's, it becomes this kind of meta moment where, you know, so, uh, someone is killed just right after watching a film the zombies quote unquote behave exactly like one would behave in a horror movie so they're very sort of self-conscious and then when the character joy is finally killed by them it's against this white screen so you just get this absence of color just right at that moment and i think if there's really kind of any moment that just ends up being very puzzling for some viewers um it's that uh, there's there's like a whole lot more, you know, just really with um, the, you know, how Sean, I think you, you kind of mentioned how this was sort of cyclical and this sort of, um, you know, we kind of end where we begin. I wonder to myself, and I really don't have any source on this, um, how much of this was actually Hyuk and Katz uh, doing or whether it was the re-editing of the film from the distributor because they had this whole elaborate sequence planned at the end that they shot a whole bunch of stuff that just didn't end up in the movie because Arletti when we see her in the uh, garden of the mental institution we only see like one side of her face they don't cut around they never cut around to show the other side of their fa her face because there's this burn mark of a hand where the messiah of evil comes out of the ocean and touches her with her hand and sort of burns uh, the side of her face which kind of would have given the ending like a different dimension oh, but yeah. instead we kind of get this whole cyclical th um, story and whether that was Katz and Chuck's uh, intentions or whether it was just part of studio re-editing, I don't know, jury's out. Interesting. So that makes me wonder now if like the thing that I said about how it reminded me of like, especially like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Caligari and um, uh, Carnival of Souls, like if it if that was just like the studio stepping in and being like, well, this is a this is this is what works. We know this works. It's been done before. Let's take the safe route. It's very oh. that's that's interesting. It might be a possibility of that then. Huh. That, that's very interesting, John. Where where can one read about this alternate ending? Um, real. I think. Um... You can't really read about it anywhere. I mean, it, it'll be in various places online. You know, maybe, uh, maybe IMDb, probably, maybe um, Wikipedia. Although, if it okay. is on Wikipedia now, it would have been maybe a recent contribution because I don't remember reading about it on Wikipedia in 2019. Uh, but it's from the Huck and Cats commentary track on the Blu-ray, um, and they they don't go into detail really about what was shot and what um, wasn't. 
why they decided um, to be a little coy about that. I, I'm not sure. Maybe they just sort of didn't want to set up expectations for uh, a film that no one was ever going to see. But um, they describe that sequence. Uh, they describe, you know, what they shot. They show like, okay, that's the reason why the studio cut around you know, our Letty in that manner. So we don't see like the burn mark on the side of her face, which would have uh, just pulled people out of the story because there's no right. off to that. Um, so, you know, that's just even more, it's like sort of like why um, Messiah of Evil is like a film that almost never was that really was just kind of like, even to this very day, it's just sort of a constant work in progress. That is, that's fascinating. That just adds a whole nother level to it. I'm, I'm definitely going to have to find this Blu-ray just so I can hear the commentary. Um, that makes a lot of sense, but I'm still glad it's out there. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. it makes me think of, I don't, I don't know, uh, John, if you've had a chance to look at Shudder, but like they recently, um, I feel like maybe about a month ago, they um, released this, I guess, I don't know how lost it was, but this lost film of um, uh, Romero's. Um, I'm totally Amusement Park? The name of it. Amusement Park. Yeah, um, which I have not seen. It's, it's good. I mean, it, I, I mean it, it definitely feels like incomplete, um, but I, I thought it was, I thought for what he did, I thought it was pretty effective. And like, there were parts that definitely like, got to me um the whole thing of this old uh, like you know the effects of aging and like you know how society tends to take uh advantage of the elderly and like you know uh either by ignoring them or or uh abusing their trust or just trying to strip them of whatever uh, wealth they've attained in their lives i felt i felt it was pretty effective like there there was a I, I had this I had this moment after I finished watching it where I was like I wanted to call my grandparents and tell them how much I love them. Um, so I thought it, it it did it did do its job, but like it did feel a little bit incomplete. Like he probably wanted to shoot more, and that maybe this is what he got done. Um, and especially considering like it had been not seen for so long, that uh, that's probably part of the reason. Yeah. Interesting. No, it, 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 it's really true. And, and one of the things that really kind of draw me in, draw me back to this film is that uh, I guess some people, they kind of refer to this film as like sort of like an art house horror film. And they'll refer to uh, the work of Ar, um, Ari Aster in that kind of way. Uh, but I mean, really the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, yeah, I mean, they're, one, I mean, horror cinema back then, you know, it was like really where so many people came from under Roger Corman, like Francis Ford Coppola cut his teeth on, you know, making horror films for Corman, uh, as in Martin Scorsese, Jonathan Demme, and uh, Ron Howard and other filmmakers. But what's really fascinated me is that uh, art film has always kind of really performed the function of horror cinema even when the subjects are not explicitly horror. And that's kind of something that I think has been very true recently where you have like a lot of European art house cinema recently that uh, 
they're not explicitly horror films in their subject matter, but they perform the functions of horror so effectively, like uh, Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built, or- Oh yeah, yeah the, films, yeah, the films of Lynn Ramsey, or um, Michael Hanukkah's uh, Cache, and uh, other films by Michael Hanukkah. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, another film that this kind of made me think about, and I was talking to Sean about it the other day, was uh, the, the movie Lost Highway, the, the Lynch film. Yeah. And um, how, like, I, I remember talking to people about it and saying, like, well, it's a horror movie. And they're like, it's not a horror movie. It's a drama. And I go, no, it's a horror movie. Because there was quite a bit of people that, like, I own the film and I would I would loan it to people and say like just watch it and then tell me what you think and I I, I told Sean this story the other day I actually wrote a paper uh, about that for an English uh, for an uh, American literature course that I was taking and I compared it to a book that we were reading and I felt bad because the professor had not seen the film so I said here here's my copy watch it and then let me know like if you feel like I'm still being accurate. And she came back to me two weeks later, handed me the cassette, and I said, "Oh, how'd you like it?" She said, "I didn't, I couldn't watch it." And I went, "What? What do you mean?" And she got about fifteen minutes in, got too terrified, and turned it off. And I went, oh. "There you go. It's, it's a scary ass movie. You know, there's some parts in there that are terrifying, and like, yeah. but it's it's one of his more modern, unapproachable, like super artsy, like very dense." it's not going to be easy for you to figure out you're going to sit after and think about this kind of movies and like uh yeah i i it, there's a lot of uh horror that's like that quite honestly yeah i find sometimes that uh there are films that some people they find unapproachable uh when that's really just sort of like just sort of like a cover or just sort of a code for something that's um very uh, very complicated, complex, and inaccessible. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, definitely, we've seen. I mean, and this is this is such a huge discussion in its own right. But we we have seen cinema become so commodified that you know, I mean, I I there are you know I I love some of the Marvel stuff. Um, I really broke away from it for a couple of years because I was just like, I'm just done. I just, you know, it scared me that at some point everybody was just going to work for Marvel and that those were going to be only movies. And, and it terrifies me, you know, and, and just hearing people, you know, like I always go back to, I hear, heard Alan Ball say, you know, American beauty would never ever be made for the budget. It, it, and this is like, I want to say, I heard an interview like seven, eight years ago where he said this. And so now we're even further into, I mean, there are always exceptions, but for the most part, popular cinema, with, it's just, it is what it is. It's Fast and the Furious and it's Iron Man and, and nothing against those movies, but there needs to be other things, right? And so definitely, John, when you're talking about this kind of influx of like the art house, and it's funny how that creeps in, right? Where's the one, the one thing now, the one genre or whatever, where you can kind of sneak these movies into a theater alongside, you know, Dr. Strange and Fast 10 is horror. And yeah, I mean, Midsommar, I still, to this day, am both so 
just ecstatic that that got the release and the reception that it did. And just that I had the chance to see that in not just, I mean, it would have been fine in, a, in an art house theater, but I saw that in like an AMC Same <laughs> surrounded here, yeah. by people on a Friday night. Yeah, that was, I couldn't <laughs> believe it. So, so it, it's great because it's like, you know, like, you know, independent distributors like A24 and Neon and Annapurna, they sort of uh, have kind of allowed for, you know, art cinema by stealth, you know, in the horror genre, just sort of like, it's sort of like the stealthy way to kind of keep uh, art cinema in circulation, you know, alongside, you know, Fast and Furious 9. Yeah, and <laughs> actually, um, the director, Prano Bailey Bond, who did Censor, a movie all three of us have seen, um, she she's interviewed in the newest issue of Fangoria, and she talks about the fact that, you know, the, the interviewer asked her about this like renaissance of, of horror or whatever. And she, she basically says, you know, I think right now it's just, you know, look in the eighties, which is what censor was about there, the video nasties and these you know, movies were actually condemned and, 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 you know, policed and ferreted out. And, and then at some point that relaxed and then the money people started to see like, Oh, horror gets people in the theater, doesn't it? And then you started to see the commercialization of that stuff. And then that hit a wall and kind of died for a while. And now we're definitely seeing it too. And that was her point is I think right now it's just the money people are seeing this and saying, hey, this is a way that we can get people in the theater. Horror gets pe people like horror. It, it gets people to spend money to go see it. And you can even address, you know, issues. Obviously, um, uh, oh God. Uh, Jordan Peele does that very well. I mean, there's plenty of filmmakers yeah. also that do that. Just pops into my mind because I think she directly references him in the article. But um, yeah, yeah, it's it's a great time to be a fan oh, of this stuff. It is. And, and by the way, Prano, if you're listening, uh, I'm kind of curious if you were inspired by uh, Adam Agoyan's film uh, The Adjuster, which uh, has a similar kind of subplot where like one of the characters is. Uh, uh, a censor for uh, uh, the Canadian board of, uh, uh, of film. And uh, only instead of watching video nasties and like grotesque horror all day long, the character's watching pornography all day long. And uh, <laughs> a little, what, what that kind of does to her internal emotional landscape and, and uh, perception of the, the world. And just whereas here, Prano Bailey Bond just does something so unique, taking a little piece of film history and, and just realized what if uh, someone became traumatized by what, what if a film censor became traumatized and in that trauma discovered uh, a clue that could unlock, you know, a decades old mystery. Yeah. Oh man. I, so I so want to go on a deep dive with you guys on th that movie. I don't, I'm realizing like I'm perched on a precipice with it right now because I feel like we could talk about that. There's so much to talk about, but yeah. I, I'm going to do this right now. I'm going to say, let's, let's John come back and let's yeah. do that. Um, especially maybe right <laughs> after the, the Blu-ray hits and it's more accessible. Cause I also hope I'm really hoping I, I'm going to guarantee shutter is going to pick that up and, yeah. and more people will see it. Because I want a deep dive. That movie is, I mean, I've seen it three times now and I just, it's, it's, I don't know. There's just so much there. There's so much there. 
I, I'd totally be game for that. Okay, we will do. We will definitely. Nice. Do that. That's awesome. So, I, I, it'd be great to have you back. But um, in reference to what you were just saying about the head, like worrying about like these big movies being out, I feel like one of the things that has been good is that, um, especially for horror as a genre, is that. Uh, and uh, let me give a little background. Probably, probably some of the listeners know this already, John, but um, I. I didn't want, I haven't classically watched a lot of horror growing up. Like a lot of it has been in the last few years when Sean started the podcast. And originally when he said he wanted me to come on, I said, I don't watch a lot of horror. I'm not, how am I going to be good at this? And he went, no, because you have an outside perspective. And so there has been moments where like, I look at something like they say like, oh, this is so good. And I go, really? Because the development was there for me on the story. And like, I, I've realized as a genre, like there's certain things you have to forgive as you're watching it. Um, but having that outside perspective, I think one of the things that's nice about having these like big, like the cinemas be filled with things like Marvel and DC movies and, and Fast and Furious movies, it has pushed the people who want to make horror into making better horror, into yeah. making really good quality stuff. Instead of like just going like, well, I'm just going to have a killer and he's going to be out in the woods and he's just going to slash people to death. They've went, okay, I got to make something good. I have to make something impressive. So you have, um, you have the Ari Aster's, you have like the remake of Suspiria, which I think is fantastic. So it takes it in a whole. Wonderful. Oh, isn't it? Guadagnino film is, is uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I would, I would actually, much prefer to return to that film than the Argento one, if you could believe it. I believe. I it. understand. I, I get it because, like the, I like the colors. I like the, I love the colors in the Argento. I think it's great. But man, that one's so loaded. I mean, that movie is so impressive, and you don't feel its length while you're watching it. No, it's oh, it's so good. <laughs> I, I saw John. You actually have you have an article on your website that I haven't, I just discovered it the other day. I haven't read it yet. And it's timely for us because I just uh, three months ago saw Possession for the first time. And then I showed it to Ray like two weeks oh, ago. Yeah. And we, we have another guy that comes on the podcast, that's on the podcast, Anthony, who he owns it. He imported it from, I feel like Poland because it's notoriously hard to find on disc and, and it's not streaming anywhere that, that, that I can tell. But, um, and so you have an article that's about the, uh, Suspiria 2018 Ooh. and Possession, which immediately dovetailed with I what I was telling it. Ray about Possession, where it's like Berlin is such the perfect location for this movie. You know, I, I oh man, that's it's just another one. Good lord. Yeah, no, they, it, it's um, they both um, work so well, and just sort of like just sort of how much you know they were really kind of inspired by it and just and, and it's sort of like when 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 I when we kind of ask ourselves it's like why horror it it ends up it's because what film what both of those films plus Messiah of Evil you know and plus every other film that we've mentioned you know what, what it's all about you know it's not like you know are, are we scaring the shit out of each other you know and you know how, how you know like not being able to sleep at night you know it's like no although there is that as well yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it's all about discovery. It's, uh, and it's all about um, really kind of mapping out 
the interior of uh, one and their shadow side, you know, and, and I think, you know, you really kind of got to have to ask yourself, you know, like, are there parts of my own emotional landscape that are better serviced by horror than by romantic comedy or, um, yeah. you know, um, action films and car chases? Uh, and that's kind of another reason why um, I'm doing a I'm doing a, a series a, a deep dive on Shining for uh, the Seattle International Film Festival this um, October. And one of the things I'm going to get into about why that's one of the greatest horror films of all time is because it exemplifies the fact that horror is such a strong form of cartographic cinema. And cartographic cinema is just sort of is something where uh, it, it's where the cinematic form, uh, the editing and the cinematography and the art design maps out either an actual location uh, or the interior of a mind, like in the mind of the viewer. And I think that film just sort of maps out you know, sort of one's internal psyche better than any other uh, horror film by how much it allows the viewer to project on it. I think Messiah of Evil kind of does that a little bit, you know, in its own way, maybe in a less impressive way, but it's still, you know, there's still a lot of joy to be found, you know, in that. But Guadagnino's Suspiria, I think, did that par excellence, at least for me. Wow. What, that uh, deep dive, is that going to be an article? Is it going to be a podcast or? Oh, no, it's, it's going to be virtual. It'll be a, like a virtual event. Ooh. So, uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll be, uh, as soon as it goes live, I'll be putting it on my um, uh, website under events so people can go and look at it. And also Seattle International Film Festival Center will have it on their website in about okay. a week or so. I, I'll definitely, when it comes, you said October? October, yeah. We're, 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 Perfect. we're honing in on, we're playing around with two different dates right now. So we're just sort of honing in on it. So yeah, join us for Why the Shining is the greatest horror film of all time. And you get to kind of, you know, for any anybody out there that's fans of anime, you're all going to learn about what anime has to do with The Shining. Oh, that's interesting. I'm not an anime fan, but that's interesting. That's I, I, I'm not either, but, you know, it, it's like I, I respect the form enough to yeah. interrogate the relations between uh, animation and other forms. Yeah, well said. Well said. I mean, no, nothing against it. I, I love Cowboy Bebop, but other than that, I just, I, I can't quite... Um, okay, but so let me go back. So let's do this. I want to just, um, not rapid fire, but I want to uh, kind of posit some stuff to you guys and see see what you think about this. So John, in your article, you mentioned how we're basically seeing, and it, the example you use in, in either of those, those townie attacks is, Ray, I love the way you call it, the townie attack, that's perfect, but you're seeing... <laughs> The, the movie Messiah of Evil, there's kind of this thing where it's the counterculture or the artists against or being, um, you know, attacked by, consumed by kind of the, the status quo, the, you know, the, the suits and ties, the establishment. And it's, that's definitely there. And I would even wonder while, while we were just talking about the whole tie with the first scene of the Manson family, possibly, that maybe that is there because that is where, like John, you said, that's kind of what maybe turned society off to that 60s counterculture where that became suddenly very dark and dangerous. And then you definitely saw 
historically through the 70s, that kind of hippy dippy love everybody turned into, you know, I forget who somebody famously said it, where it's like pot and, and free love became, you know, heroin and like black magic and, and murder and, and just how it just, you know, changed. But anyway, so you, you are seeing this struggle between the counterculture of the artists and then just kind of society. And I guess my question is, what ties, so, okay, the Messiah of evil, which is the establishment is waiting for his return, right? And he is, they say later on, like somebody that was in the Donner party. Yeah, so that's the Donner Party is if you look at it, it's like the states of the Wild West, the Donner Party are settlers that fail. So they actually fail to establish a society that then he returns to this society that has, you know, thus been established and spreads this kind of consuming contagion against the counterculture. So where how does the Donner Party, which is a failed establishing of society tie into this or am i just totally misreading this and i'm cuckoo no no i i mean if you're if you're reading it you know i i think it'd be safe to assume that uh this idea has crossed uh you cat's mind you know at least a couple of times but uh they and we see we see the messiah on horseback you know riding through what is like clearly like topanga canyon you know calabasas area and um this is it, it, it is sort of representing this sort of old class of um, Southern California turn of the century booster culture uh, that and this really kind of old conservative guard, you know, of like Southern California, like this sort of old mythology, like this mythologized past of Southern California and this sort of like looking back, whereas like the um, counterculture, what is being sort of gobbled up by this past is sort of all about looking forward and not existing in the past. I think that's sort of one way of looking at it, you know, where you have like the sort of old uh, conservative class of uh, Southern California history with uh, something else that has come to embody uh, Southern California and the national psyche, especially when it comes to beaches, because, you know, beaches, you know, before we, we think of beaches today, uh, I mean, maybe, you know, anything north of, uh, you know, Torrance perhaps as being, you know, sort of a very much kind of a sort of part of like expensive housing and, you know, sort of part of like kind of like elite. Uh, where in, in reality, it was like just sort of really kind of like a location, a symbolic location of uh, something opposite of that. So, you know, really to kind of like summarize that thought, it's just sort of about, it's, it's really kind of just a classic horror trope of um, the past, you know, which sort of the suits and ties, silent majority, conservative California, uh, coming back, you know, to wreak havoc on the present, this classic horror idea of uh, history is the past unfinished business. Oh, wow. Well said. Ray, what do you think? Am I nuts? No, I think them? that, um, well, one thing I was, I was trying to remember the exact scene. There's a scene where, um, 
uh, and John referencing a little bit there where he's that a hunter, I think it's a diary or something, or is it someone who tells a story that a hunter met the Messiah um, and that he was this, he was the member of the Donner party. And he tells him that the reason he survived was doing, was becoming, because, be, becoming this evil thing, like becoming literally consuming other people. Um, But uh, I was just, I mean, I was trying to think about like that, how like, and it's interesting that he gets here and then he walks into the scene and he keeps coming back in and going back out of it. Um, but I mean, it does go back to the whole concept, like John was just saying of like, you know, he's this older version of things and he doesn't, he, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, take over the young people. He doesn't take over like the artists and things like that. He takes over the old, like the, the townies and like they're the ones that get turned and, and become these monsters. Um, and he's like that recur, he's the, he has that recurring past. Um, I don't know, maybe it just feels like, I, something about it feels like because of the moon and the whole lunar cycle, like it's a, that it's like a season almost. Well, it's a hundred like years, right? It's, it, yeah, it's every hundred years. Charlie at the beginning is talking about, uh, you know, the, the I, and that's a great horror trope right there too. Uh, it may, immediately made me think of for whatever reason, because it's a thousand times, but um, uh, Dagan. Um, Stuart Gordon. Thank you, Stuart Gordon. My God. The, the idea that the town drunk, he, Charlie even says like, I, I get drunk and sleep on the sidewalk like a dog so they don't bother me, but I see things. And so now I'm going to, you know, he tells our Letty like your father. Gort, thank you, Stuart Gordon. My God. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It was just another in interesting trope and it, it, the hundred or the bum is the interesting trope, but what I was going for, and I got sidetracked uh, trying to remember Stuart Gordon's name is, he says, a hundred years ago, the moon turned red. He came out of the hills and then, you know, all, all of this happened. And so it is cyclical. There's some, you know, some kind of cycle at play here, which I think I, I now I'm mixing my articles and I don't remember, John, if you mentioned this in, in your essay or if I read it somewhere else, there is definitely an indirect Lovecraftian and I love so first of yeah. all like that is a term that is so over and wrongfully used these days where I some agree. of the stuff people are like oh this is Lovecraftian it's like no it's not no Messiah of Evil is kind of Lovecraftian in that like not only is it a very dreamy world but just the way that people behave yes you know, that film like they feel they behave like they're in a dream themselves you know and they're they're just like totally completely you know, just out of it, you know, I mean, I guess that is where the Lovecraftian thing comes in, and I think, yeah, that moment with, um, uh, with the homeless guy, uh, Elisha Cook, who is, like, about as old school Hollywood as you can yeah. get, Maltese Falcon, you know, yeah. That. so, yeah, like, there's definitely something there with that guy. That's a, that's a great scene. Um, also, just as a quick aside, I just want to point out that I love the fact that, so, the gas station is probably my favorite scene. I don't know why. There's just something about that gas station. And John, you talk a lot in your article about, um, oh, the gentleman that wrote 26 gas stations. Or Ed, I didn't write Ed, it. Ed Ruscha. Ed, Ed Ruscha, the, the, the book, the paintings. Um, and how 
the gas station scene like already gives you this foreboding and then we get into this this idea of um chromophobia uh david bachelor right that was his term he came up with and you talk about the idea of color versus kind of color being something that is is bad to the establishment because it's it's exotic or it's it's gay or it's it's whatever you know whatever perceived thing and right. ray had a really really interesting point about this last night do you remember ray i i wanted to ask yes. you to run this I, by I john curious, and see what he thought um and it didn't hit me until the uh the scene where he i forget the name of the character but he picks her up and he's driving her in the truck and he eats the rat yeah. um and that was that if the effect of if the effect of the return of the messiah is that it, all these people start to become very ghoulish um the white people in the town uh, already become they become more pale so they're almost like whitish sheets and like their their eyes are very hollow looking and you know they, they don't look they obviously look unnatural and my my curiosity was that like he's obviously he's obviously this albino but like i thought to myself what are we supposed to maybe think that before he was a regular black man and that he maybe got like the, the evil has started taking over so like he's it's bleaching him out almost yeah um i think that's a fair interpretation and um it does fit in with the chromophobia argument uh, as well like this sort of fear of invasion by color and uh that's the filmmakers really playing on that. An interesting thing about that character of like the albino trucker, Benny Robinson is the guy, the actor's playing. Uh, he is a, an African-American gentleman and uh, with a, a skin condition, uh, renders his skin and his hair white. And uh, yeah, on while, while he was on set, you know, he would he'd be talking to the caterers and they didn't know this and the caterers were just sort of dropping all sorts of you know oh. racist you know di diatribe around him without even really wow no without realizing who it was they were talking to and wow and, and the producer knew the got knew benny robinson would go and pick him up from his house you know every day and so yeah the, so i i would definitely say with the character of um um bit with uh, the character of the albino trucker uh it feeds into that um, uh, into that uh, critique of in the film, uh, and this sort of like in fear of invasion of color that uh, is really really kind of a feature of the conservative establishment, uh, and I, so I think yeah you're right Ray, but you know not not just on top of that I think the filmmakers saw. Uh, in Benny Robinson himself, an opportunity to really, really drive the point home. Yeah. Wow. Oh man, he, that the scene where he it, it picks up Laura and is <laughs> eats the rat <laughs> is. I mean, there's so much about that scene that's unusual. It's not just the rat. It's that like because uh, if that's the case, it's it's interesting because of okay, when they do start to turn, the other ones we don't see the uh, exhibit the ability of speech. Yet, see, he still has the ability of speech. So, I mean, does it suggest then that, like, that because they were already white, 
that um, they lost that ability to speak and that because he started as a black man that like he still retained some of his humanity and it's retained in the fact that like because he doesn't try to eat her and like he doesn't he's not there for the consumptions so he's eating rats and like I don't know there's something about like even the listening of the Wagner like it's it's, it's so it's such a yeah it's a it's a, a it's strange it's, it's not just classical music it is like the most white classical music ever it's yeah it was composed by a german and it's all about german um of of of, of strength you know yeah. like it's like damn how much whiter can it get <laughs> and this he's driving true. them around yeah yeah oh man he's driving them around I just can't help it. I, there's something you know, about that that I, I feel like is it expressing more of the whiteness of this spreading. It's like this. <laughs> and, you know, really, like, gentlemen, this is the thing that I love. This this is my motivation behind the podcast. And just so much is like, when you really watch a film and you think about it, there's so, I mean, you, you know, and like Lynch is great with this because he, he doesn't want to give you any answers. Wherever your mind goes, he'll be like, sure, good. That's what I want. I want my audience to think about it and for them to make their own conclusions. And, and really like whether or not some of this stuff was intentional by the filmmakers for Messiah Evil, whether it was accidental, whether they wouldn't, you know, some of this stuff, they might be like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. What, I mean, you know, you hear things like that in interviews with filmmakers all the time, but any film well maybe not any but so many films really it's like that first watch is like staring into your reflection in a body of water and then from there you you can dive in and there's just there can be you know un, untold depths that you can get to and that's why i just love talking about this stuff with other people that look at it that way because look what we just did for messiah of, of evil i mean not anything against it but yeah. i mean it it definitely I feel like you know John you make the point in your article it's so underrated and underseen yeah and, and hopefully through you know podcasts such as this you know it'll continue to find uh, an audience I mean I don't I don't see it really as being you know in, entered into canon you know alongside you know The Exorcist or The Shining but uh, you know really people I, I I'm excited to hear you know what other people. Uh, take away from this film and not just people you know who are uh, really into film but people who are like into other uh, form of visual arts like painters and photographers you know I'd be very curious as to what their takeaways are from the film yeah definitely yeah. Um, closing thoughts and then John I want you to tell the listeners where they can find you I know you have a podcast that I've, I've now listened to the first episode of and I, I really really enjoyed but before we go there because I my my headphones just gave me the first like low battery so we're going to wrap it soon but any anything else and again John I'll start with you as a guest any anything you want to like close with takeaways whatever anything about the film yeah uh, I'll, all I would say is uh, check out this film uh, the, the legacy of um, the new Hollywood, the filmmakers that came out of the late 60s and into the 70s, you know, the people that brought us films like The Godfather, Taxi Driver, Apocalypse Now, and um, 
the last picture show and what have you. Yeah, it's this powerful and important legacy in the history of American cinema, but look at films such as this and really, really do not write off the importance of filmmakers like Roger Corman and Russ Myers, you know, and others in sort of like the B movie department, because that really kind of set the stage for a lot of alternative cinemas that we would start to see in the 80s and into the 90s and even today. So don't, don't overlook uh, independent cinema B movies as part of it. And I'll just, there's one book I'd recommend. Um, I don't remember the author's name, but it's a very, very easy title to remember. It's called um, Coming This Wednesday to a Theater or Drive-In Near You. And it's sort of all about this sort of 70s shadow cinema. So, so, you know, if you're fans of Taxi Driver and Apocalypse Now, check out this book. Don't write those uh, off these films. There's some gems out there. Very cool. Ray, any closing thoughts? Well, you know, I think the one thing I'd add is uh, just to add on to that is that like, yeah, check out this film, but, you know, um, maybe it won't become like part of canon, but I, I, you know, uh, I think that one of the things about uh, horror as a genre is it has the ability for, um, to borrow a term from from music is like, there's great B-side stuff. There's stuff that like, you know, you 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 see you see the Romeros, you see the Argentos, you see those films because people tell you about them. But then there's stuff out there that like is worth investigating, worth deep diving into. There's this, there's um, Carnival of Souls. There's uh, uh, for some reason I'm blanking, but like there's stuff to be found, and it's it, 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 possession is another one. Like you know, uh, if it were. It, if it were more watched, if it were more out there, then there would be at least a Blu-ray or DVD, at least a yeah. DVD edition available in the U.S. And it's not. It's something you have to hunt down and find out. But sometimes those things that you have to hunt down and find out, find for your own and get a chance to watch finally are really worth the time. Um, uh, you know, uh, Sean knows the story, but John, when I first became a big Lynch fan, like I couldn't, you know, it was just impossible to see Eraserhead. And I read about it online and I saw our pictures and everything. And I was trying to watch this film. And then finally it was, they did a retrospective of his work at LACMA about it back in like 97. And they showed it along with Dune which I still find it was such an entertaining experience because the first thing they did was show Dune, which were all these people were there for Dune and it's where it's kitschiness. And then um, I knew what to expect, but the rest of the audience did not. <laughs> they fell silent. It was almost like they were in terror of the film for the whole hour <laughs> and a half. And I was like, this is the best way to see this goddamn yeah. movie. Wow. Like People were uncomfortably laughing during the whole, my knees, my knees moment. But the whole rest of the movie, like you get, I could see people turning to their friend and being like, what is this? And I had to wait to see that. And then once I saw it, I, I then had to hunt down a video store that had it. And I went and rented it so I could dub an, my copy of it. And I had that and uh, Unchin Andalu on a tape together. And I would loan it to people and be like, these are both worth watching. Check them out. Yeah. And, wow. 
there is stuff like that that you just you have to hunt them out but they are worth hunting down they are worth sharing with people El Topo wasn't on a, a DVD until I feel like 2005 so however you get to decimate this if you see something and you like it and you want to spread it to people spread it because that's how we keep these things alive and a lot of these things are 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 worth keeping alive and they're just they aren't the canon but they need they deserve to be they're the great b-sides and don't link don't neglect the b-sides well said yeah well okay guys so john um as we close where where can people find you uh, they can find me uh, online, uh, johntrafton.com, where I uh, post uh, articles, uh, whatever I really feel like writing. Got an article on the go right now uh, that I expect to drop towards the end of this month called Do We Deserve the Xenomorph? Uh, I also do a podcast called This Movie Saved My Life with photographer Miles Fortune. We got a, we're going to be recording another episode another week or so so look for that to drop we're going to be pulling an all-nighter watching Ooh. movies and then recording about the experience uh and you can follow me on instagram and uh, twitter at, at john trafton film awesome well okay so i implore our listeners to seek you out because i feel like you know and i barely scratched the surface but i really enjoyed the first episode of your podcast which was about color and cinema and I really have enjoyed you know, the, the first article I read on your website. I really, really enjoyed. So, and please, I, I will keep in touch when you do the event for the shining, let me know and I'll promote it, you know, on my social media and on the show. And then also, again, I would love, let's say somewhere around the time, I think sensor drops on DVD and Blu-ray on, I know it's September. I feel like it's the 8th of September. I'm going to be out of town for a while at the end of September. So maybe yeah. we can fit it in either, you know, after the blu-ray drops or maybe when i get back whatever but we'll keep in touch i'd love to have you back especially to talk about that and yeah you know anything else that sounds hey if if you're willing to do an episode john on um on um oh i'm totally blanking on it right now on spiria yeah oh uh, that would be good too and we can tori would love to do that one john yeah she would tori's one of our one of our contributors and she loves that film she loved it Oh yeah, you you so, want, yeah. Keep me in mind for that. I would, right. I'd love to do that. As Absolutely. Well. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, then for the Horror Vision Horror Podcast, uh, I'm Sean. I'm Ray. Our guest has been John Trafton, and we'll be back soon with another episode. But in the meantime, find Messiah Evil, watch it, and then read John's article. All right. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs>